It's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to shout at me at the top of your lungs. Why don't we clean your room instead? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it probably wouldn't work. Yeah, no. Hey, Rachel. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm doing pretty good, too. Yeah. I should have asked you. Kind of rude. No, that's okay. I mean, you know, I know that you care about me. You don't have to say it. Yeah. I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Yeah, I'm a little nervous, but... You're nervous? Yeah. Why are you nervous? Uh, Well, I don't know. Because it's just a a pretty weighty topic. Meltdowns? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, for, for the picture that I have in my mind of what a meltdown is, it's actually kind of a complicated thing because you've got the actual meltdown. There's the in public meltdown. There's the at home meltdown. There's the, I have an audience meltdown. <laughs> then there's the false meltdown, which is really just, this has worked for me in the past and now I'm going to do it again. There's so many meltdowns. The Kids, tired meltdown. Yeah. The hungry meltdown. They're all a little bit different, I think. And yet the same. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, well, they kind of end the same way. Yeah. For the kid. Yeah. So, I don't know. Do you want to just dive right into this? We yeah. have We have a lot to cover, and I really want to respect our listeners' time. Yeah. So, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and get started. One of the first things that I did was ask a question in the chat room. What are some ways that you help your child avoid a meltdown? And, uh, and just for reference, the topic today is understanding and working through your child's meltdown. And so I, th- I thought this question of how do you avoid it in the first place was a useful one. And I got some great answers and I'm going to go through a couple of them here. Okay. I, I almost feel like I don't even need to go over my points because the answers were, were so good. Sharla Verkler said, as we learn triggers, we avoid or prepare for them as much as possible. Leaving a party before they collapse in a pile of tears, etc. Oh, and here's, here's another one that she answered later. She said, we have a little quiz slash game before we go into a store. Do we yell? Do we scream? Do we smile? Can we have fun? Do we make faces at people? And that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, that does sound like fun. She says they love it and it helps them know going in what's expected of them. Mm -hmm. Christopher says, I really focus on how he reacts to situations. If we recognize a situation that is going to result in him getting frustrated, we have a technique called distraction. I like that one. Yeah. He's only 14 months, so when he arches his back or collapses and lays there, we make sure he didn't hurt himself, and then we ignore it. Since there is no immediate reaction, he gets up and goes back to what he was doing prior. Those The, the theatrics are... It's, it's amazing the stuff that kids will put themselves through to express their distaste with the situation. Yeah. Well, and there, it starts very early too. 14 months. <laughs> it's earlier than that. Gabrielle said, well-fed, well-rested, and learning their natural rhythms has helped bunches with my boys. Not putting them in the situation in the first place is half the battle, and then teaching them better ways to deal with those situations on the, is the other half. We're still working on the other half. Hmm. And I'm going to go ahead and bring in Alice is here because I liked it so much. Are kids like clients? Set clear expectations early, define roles and responsibilities, keep communication open, and deliver on schedule. I mean, that's, that's a really great comparison right there. And though it's not necessarily as simple as that, yeah, you know, there, there is definitely some added complexity when you're dealing with 
an irrational human being, which sometimes clients are. But setting clear expectations and and doing that consistently, Mm -hmm. defining roles and responsibilities is kind of a part of setting expectations, but it's also establishing, hey, you know, in this situation, just, just like any other situation, my role is this and your role is that. And those roles don't change from situation to situation. Yeah. And uh, keeping communication open. And, and part of what we do as parents is we teach communication too. So, so not only are we leaving the channels of communication open, but we're also equipping our children with the tools they need to be able to communicate with us. Yeah. And then delivering on schedule is really kind of, in my mind, it's part of that consistency, you know, it's just doing, doing that consistently. And that's probably the hardest. It is the hardest part. Yeah. Yeah. Because sometimes you're tired. Sometimes you're just fed up with Sometimes. like the same old thing. Yeah. <laughs> All the time you're tired. Yeah. You know. So I, I really, I really love those answers for how to avoid meltdowns. Yeah. I do want to say, I don't know if you get into this, but I do want to say that I remember when our first was born and we were really, we really wanted to avoid the, the meltdowns and things like that. And so what we ended up doing is we would, take our son out of situations that would, that we could see might cause a meltdown. And I just, I want to say that something we've learned in the, you know, probably the last, I guess, well, I guess the whole eight years of his life is that it's better for him to go through that meltdown and for us to be there to work through it with him, you know, because it, it just gets worse. Yeah. Like he can't just avoid every situation where he's going to have some kind of meltdown. Yeah, that's true. And I feel like there's a healthy balance between allowing our children to experience those things and helping them avoid it. And there's some strategy involved in that, but we can kind of get into that later. Yeah. Okay. Going back to, I think it was episode two where we where we talked about removing the word no from your vocabulary. Mm -hmm. Sometimes one of the biggest triggers is just giving a swift no right away when they ask for something or when they want something. No is a, it's a good word, but it also can be used improperly and convey a dismissiveness that you probably don't mean when you're saying no. What you probably mean is I wish I could say yes to that right now. I can't because of this, this, and this. And it's so hard to communicate all of those things, yeah. especially to a child who doesn't understand or really care about your agenda. But most of the time, your agenda is, the, is in the best interest of everybody involved. And so if you can find a way, go back and listen to episode two. If you can find a way to respond to a child's request without just cutting it off right away, then that can, that can also help avoid a meltdown situation. So I don't, I don't want to stay on avoiding meltdowns too long because meltdowns are going to happen as much as you try to avoid them. Your, your kids are going to find themselves probably often in situations where they become emotionally flooded. Their, their emotions are so strong and so big and they, they just don't have the tools yet to control them to, rein those things in the process through them. And so it's not, it's not a matter of if you, if your child is experiencing a meltdown, it's a matter of when your child is experiencing a meltdown. Yeah. And so the first thing that I I wanted to talk about when it comes to helping your child work through a meltdown is this idea of the, the relativity of their experience of their emotional experience to the kind of experience that we as adults have when we feel frustrated or, Mm -hmm. or upset or angry about something emotionally flooded, basically. Yeah. Now over time, hopefully we've gained the tools necessary to, to be able to work through those emotions in a healthy way to express ourselves without damaging relationships and the object of our frustration 
because of the perspective that we've gained over over the years, the object of our frustration is something that's, that seems very significant and important to us compared to the object of a child's frustration. And, and, and I've said this before many times. Oh, don't, don't be upset about that. That that's uh, it, it doesn't matter. It's going to be okay. And, and, and you kind of dismiss the object of their frustration because you see in relation to the things that are important to you that you've learned are very significant, how insignificant the object of your child's frustration seems. Yes. Yeah, we have a much wider frame of reference. But for kids, whenever they're going through a a sense of loss or something that they feel like they're not allowed to do or those kinds of things, I mean, it it feels like the end of the world. You know, I, I think about back to when I was a kid and I remember specifically going through situations like that where it felt like it was the end of the world and that I was not going to wake up the next day. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so you think about the position a child is in anyway. They are not able to make very many decisions for themselves. Yeah. So, so there's already some frustration there, just this underlying current that's constantly there. And hopefully as, as the relationship is strengthened between the child and the parent, that frustration starts to go away because they see the value in that. But, but it's difficult. I mean, it's, it's hard being a child yeah. in the first place. And then to have something that you care about so much and to be told by somebody who's bigger, who's important to you that you look up to, yeah. that that thing is insignificant and isn't worth your emotion it can be heartbreaking. And, and so I want us to, to pretend that the object of the frustration doesn't exist and just look at the experience mm-hmm. that your child is having. If you, if you remove the object and you just look at the experience, you're likely to find that the child is experiencing an emotion that is as strong, if not stronger than the kind of emotion that you experience when you face frustration in life. Right. Yeah. I think that's good taking away the object because I think we get get distracted by that, you know, when, when kids get upset because they can't find their favorite toy and we're like, oh, it's just a stuffed animal, you know, like it's got raggedy ears and one of the eyes is missing. Big deal. But to them, you know, it's a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're, if we're focused on their experience, it's a lot easier for us to empathize with them. And that empathy is a, a very necessary first step in siding with our kids, not, not so that we can give them what they want or give into an unhealthy request, but just so that we can be on their side. And there's a big difference there. You can, you can be on somebody's side and be for them without giving into something unhealthy or unproductive that they want in that moment. Yeah. And what empathy also does is that it helps kids feel like their feelings are acceptable, which in our home, uh, I was just telling somebody that every feeling is acceptable. Yeah. The actions that we take because of those feelings aren't always acceptable, but every feeling is acceptable because I don't want our boys to grow up and think that they have to stuff feelings because, you know, we, I think we all know a lot of adults who go around doing that, you know, and then what happens is you explode in, a silly moment when, you know, yeah, the, the emotions, this is not, it's not a logical thing. When, when you feel attached to something or you feel attached to an outcome or whatever it is, and things don't work out the way that you want or expect them to, there's a logical part, especially, you know, as you get older, as, as you learn and, and grow, there's a logical part that can kick in and help you navigate that. But children don't have that. Yeah. It's a, it's a very emotional thing. And in either case, the emotion is there and it has to be worked through. It, it can't be pushed aside or it can't be pushed down. It has to be worked through in order for them to be able to move on past that situation 
in a healthy way. Yeah. And, and honestly, it's something that also takes work on the part of parents, which is a totally different topic. But, you know, whenever our boys are experiencing extreme anger or extreme sadness, it makes me uncomfortable, you know, and that's something that we have to work through as parents too, because it may be that when we were kids, we weren't given the freedom to express those feelings. And so yeah. there, there's some work that we have to do there as well. If it was, if it was demonstrated to us by our parents that when we feel really sad, so, and, and, and it's, it's not, this isn't a blame thing or it's your fault thing. It's, it's kind of a natural, like we don't like to see other people sad. Yeah, exactly. So I remember, I remember my parents or, or even adults who were important in my life saying, oh, it's going to be okay. Just cheer up. Yeah. Put us, you know, turn that frown upside down. And, and it, they weren't purposefully dismissing my emotions, but what I learned from that was that when I feel sad, I need to, there's something wrong. Yeah. And I need to find a way to cheer up instead of working through that sadness, which is super valuable to do. Yeah. So we read a book recently by Susan Stiffelman. And what was it called again? Can you remind me? It was called uh, Parenting Without Power Struggles. Parenting Without Power Struggles. We're going to put that in the show notes. Yeah. And I just want to say, by the way, that we don't get any money for any of this, like, you know, recommending books and stuff. We just really believe in some of the things that we've read. Yeah. If you go to, if you go to in the boat with Ben.com slash six, you're going to, you're going to be able to see in the show notes. We, we take, we, we write down not just a, a manuscript of what said or, or bullet points or an outline. We actually go through and, and kind of rewrite the entire episode, but we link these specific things that we're mentioning because they're great resources. They're mm -hmm. resources that have helped us in profound ways. And so we want to share those with you. And like Rachel said, we're not, this isn't a sponsorship thing. Yeah. It's, we're not selling anything. So, yeah. So, so parenting without power struggles by Susan Stiffelman in this book, we read something about meltdowns that really changed the way that we approached helping our children work through those big emotions when they experience them. Mm -hmm. And I loved the connection that was made here because it really, not only did it help me understand my kids' emotions better, but honestly, it helped me understand my own emotions. Yeah, exactly. So the, the connection that's made is, you, and you may be familiar with the five stages of grief. Now, often when that's talked about, it's talked about in the context of losing a loved one. Mm -hmm. And though that's the most common use of the five stages of grief methodology, it really can apply to any situation in life where you experience some form of loss. Loss doesn't always, the, the object of your loss isn't always a person. Sometimes it's a loss of control of a situation, or sometimes it's a loss of a thing that you really enjoyed or liked. And, and that process, working through the five stages of grief, that process scales mm -hmm. depending on the size of that loss to you. So it may, it may be something that's small and insignificant, but, but even though it's small, losing it has some measure of an emotional impact and you will naturally work through those emotions using the five stages of grief. Yeah. And the five stages of grief, they even talk about this with loss of a love, loved one. It's not necessarily a cut and dry scientific. You're going to be in this stage for this long and this stage for this long. The duration uh, of each stage is different. Sometimes you might even skip a stage. Sometimes people get stuck in a stage. It really depends on, on the person. Your child is unique and they're going to have their own unique experience with these stages. And so I, I wanted to point that out so that as we go through them, as you recognize them in your child, you don't think, oh, well, they're not, they're not going through this stage long enough. So maybe something's wrong there. Now yeah. it's, it's, it's probably natural that they go through one shorter and one longer, or they maybe 
have a tendency to get stuck in one, those, those are natural things. So it's just good to be aware of that. Yeah. So I want to, I want to go ahead and get into the first stage of grief and that's denial. And this is, um, this is a funny one with kids because it's not just a spoken no or a disagreement. Sometimes it's just ignoring yeah. Altogether. Yeah. Our twins are really good at that. You tell them, you tell them they can't do something or you tell them not to do something or you tell them it's time to do something else. And it's almost like they pretend they haven't heard you. Right. So that is, that is a form of denial. But sometimes they will speak up and they'll say, no. You know, honestly, I'd rather have the no than the ignoring. Like I get so angry about the ignoring. It's good for me to review all of this. So can we, would you say that it's healthy to, to coach our kids and say, if I tell you that it's time to do something and you don't want to do it, tell me that you don't want to. Yeah. And in, I don't know, we could try it. Well, so back, back in episode two, when we talked about removing the word no, we said one of the things that we can help our children do instead of saying no it's, it's healthier. It's, it's a better form of communication to say, I don't want to do that. And, and then to say why I don't want to do that because I'm trying to finish coloring this picture. But most, most parents are, are going to say, yeah, well, I definitely experienced the denial stage. Yeah. I was trying to think, cause somebody asked the question, do you think these stages change according to age? And I was trying to think with our boys, I know the twins are three and they're in, you know, their denial looks like flat out ignoring. Um, because yeah. if you tell them to do something or if you, even if you ask them to do something if, or if you try to, you know, play a little game, they just, if they don't want to do it, they just ignore that you've said anything. Yeah. And then with our eight year old, he is very verbal. He says this thing that it cracks me up and I have to. <laughs> I have to work really hard to mask this when we're having an exchange, but I'll, I'll use, and maybe I just need to change my language, but I'll, I'll use the word you need to do such and such. You need to clean your room. You need oh, to, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and he'll say, I don't need to, you want me to. <laughs> Which are probably words that we've used with him. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it can be uh, maddening. But I think it just, I mean, I, I, our six-year-old also uses his words. The four-year-old kind of just lays on the ground and acts like the whole world is over. So yeah. he doesn't really use words or ignore. He just like, I don't well, know. And that, and that might be him skipping straight to depression, which is <laughs> one of the... Oh, poor guy. So then the next stage after denial is anger. And... Anger sometimes is an emotion that throws us off because though anger as an emotion isn't a bad thing, it can actually be a very healthy emotion. Mm -hmm. It can lead you to doing it. Anger, anger can lead you to do things that are very productive and helpful and, and push the situation along. The, the power of that emotion can, can propel you in ways that other emotions just can't. Yeah. But because there are so many unhealthy expressions associated mm -hmm. with anger, we tend to think of anger negatively and, and not want our children to experience that emotion. Yeah. This has been a hard one for us too, because we have our eight year old, uh, for, I mean, since he was really little to maybe 18 months to two, he's had just a very physical expression of anger. And so, you know, early on we established rules of anger and we work through, I mean, pretty diligently, we work through alternatives to anger and what he could do instead. And, and anger is just, it's just a really powerful emotion and, and it's scary for parents because sometimes you see your child exploding in anger and you're, it, it's like, he's a person you don't even know because of what anger can do to people, you know? And so yeah. I know for, for us, you know, we, we, Went, we actually worked with a counselor with him to try to figure out ways that we could, you know, help him feel the anger, but not act out on the anger. And so, yeah. and that's been really helpful. So I just wanted to 
to put in there that, you know, if, if your child really does struggle with how to safely express that anger, don't be afraid to get a counselor because there, there is no shame there. You know, it, it is extremely beneficial to your child if, if you kind of feel out of your league, which I feel like we did for a while. Yeah, definitely. There's no, there's no shame in that whatsoever. Yeah. The reason counselors and, and psychologists and psychiatrists, the reason those professions exist is, is because we, as a culture, we need people who are dedicated to understanding in, in full what is going on Yeah, behind the scenes. We, as parents, we don't have time to read every single book and keep up with every single study that that will help us understand the depths and and the the complicated pieces that make up who our children are and how they develop and grow. Well, I certainly try to. But. Yes, yes you do, <laughs> and that's a fact I I greatly appreciate. But yeah, anger so anger is not bad, and the the worst thing that we can do is react to that anger and try to shut it down. What we need to do is is and and this is something that I've said before. And, and I say often, and I say it over and over, anytime I see an unhealthy expression of anger, I say, it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to punch the wall. Yeah. Let's do this instead. And if you can find other ways that they can express their anger that are healthy, that aren't going to harm them or somebody else, what if, what if you could say, it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to shout at me at the top of your lungs. Why don't we clean your room instead? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it probably wouldn't work. Yeah, no. But but I think that kids have different expressions of anger too because the eight-year-old also has, you know, they deal with this flight or, uh, fight or flight response too. Yeah. And so a lot of times whenever he would feel angry and he knew that he couldn't, you know, go kick a wall or throw something um, because he was really trying, he was really trying to abide by the laws of anger. And so he would take off running instead. And so, you know, we had to revisit this. Like, I, I don't think it's wrong to continue adding those laws of anger as long as you're all on the same page, you know, yeah. but I think, I mean, kids are really creative about the ways that they find to express themselves. And so if we're, you know, we have to constantly revise what we're doing yeah, because and, and of that, because we can't think of everything. You can't think of everything. And daily your child is changing and growing and learning new things. They may have seen somebody at school express their anger in a way that they've never seen before. And they, they're like, I'm going to try this on today. Yeah. What was it? The eight year old had a really funny word when he came home from school one day. Well, no, he got that from, are you talking about dolt? <laughs> you dolt. That's from, that's from a book. I believe, I believe it's from Harry Potter. Oh. That, that, I mean, that was, that was funny though, because <laughs> that word is not offensive at all to me. No, but the, spirit behind the spirit that behind word it. Yeah, is definitely. very offensive. If you were to translate that into adult speak, it would probably be a very foul word. Yeah. And so that, see, that is something where I would, should probably, because I haven't, mm -hmm. I, sh I should probably say it's okay to feel angry, but it's not okay to call me a really bad name like that. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's kind of hard not to laugh what they come up with though. <laughs> it's true. The next stage is bargaining. Oh man, we've never experienced that. No, never. <laughs> I I kind of like this stage because and and this is this is a really tough one. You've got to hold this in in a really fine balance because bargaining is a great life skill. If it's something that you care about and it's something that's important to you and it's something that's good for you and for the people around you, bargaining and, and fighting for something and negotiating, those are, those are good skills. It's good to be able to work your way into something like that when yeah. it's, when it's important. And as an adult, we're often the ones in, in the position of power that get to make the decision of, you know, this isn't as important as this other thing that we need to do right now. Yeah. And, and sometimes 
we have to make those judgments so quickly that we don't really get a chance to weigh all of the different options and scenarios and stuff. So certainly we're going to encounter times when our judgment in that situation may be unmerited or could be called into question if you were being logical about it. Yeah. And, and some parents have a really hard time with this. Uh, some people listening to this might say, oh, you never want to give ground or you never want to give the impression that your judgment doesn't stand. Yeah. And, and I, I don't, what I don't want to say, what I don't want people to hear is that you should allow your child to question your authority. I don't know. This is, th this suddenly became something kind of controversial for me. Yeah. Because there's, there's also value there's value in knowing when to and how to submit yourself to authority. Yes. There's also value in questioning authority and bargaining and negotiating and fighting for what is right. Yeah, exactly. And I barely grasp the difference between those two as an adult. How in the world do you help your child understand that if not experientially? Yeah, yeah. So as a parent, what I encourage is taking a step back from the situation and asking yourself the question, why did I make that judgment? Why is it so important to my child? And if you need to, I've heard this advice before and I kind of like it. If you need to make a concession or you need to, and not need, if, if, you, if you determine, no, it would actually be good to make a concession here because they've made a good argument and I, but I don't want them to think that they can just argue every time and get what they want. Yeah. You can, you can frame it in a way that says, you know what? I've changed my mind. I've decided that you can have five more minutes because I'm going to do this instead and, and make sure that the child understands that you're still in charge they need that from you. They need to know that you're in charge, that there are boundaries, that they're structured. That's a part of what helps them feel secure. Mm -hmm. But it's also good for them to know that they can think independently and they can negotiate and they can think critically about a situation. And the more you can, the more you can help them see the value of that kind of thought process, the more equipped they're going to be as adults to make good decisions for themselves without having to depend on other people all the time to make those decisions for them. Right. Yeah. So bargaining is a, it's a stage that could last a really long time. I know with, um, with our eight year old, he's an extremely strong willed child. And I know that we have at least two others who are extremely strong willed, which is fun. Um, but I, I remember going through, uh, I didn't, I didn't know if you were going to share this story, but, um, going through all of the, these stages with our eight year old one time and we got stuck in the bargaining stage. It was probably like an hour of being stuck in the bargaining stage Yeah, and we had to let him work his way through the grief of not getting what he wanted, you know, Yeah. but it took a really long time and we had to have that time cut out. Because you can't rush that process. Uh, because if you do, they just get stuck in that stage. And, and sometimes it is necessary to, to cut that off. But this is, this is going back to what we were saying about being purposeful and intentional about when these meltdowns happen and, and when you find yourself working through these things. Is, and there's, there's not a one-size-fits-all there are going to be different things that have different weights for your child emotionally as they grow and develop. But most of the time, if you're working through these things with them and they're getting to practice working through their emotions, practice working through these stages over time, they're going to become more efficient at doing that. And so those, those things that did used to take a long time are going to be shorter. You know, an hour, an hour of bargaining seems excessive. That doesn't necessarily mean that you're sitting in the same space with them going back and forth for an entire hour. Yeah. But it might be that they're so fixed on it 
that that they are trying to be as creative as possible and come up with any one scenario that might work in order for them to be able to get what they want. Yeah. Susan Stiffelman in her book has this, she talks about this um, phenomenon that, that some kids just personify, I guess. Uh, and it's called the sticky brain. And mm-hmm. um, it, a lot of this, you know, the strong willed children can have what's called a sticky brain where something just gets stuck and they cannot see another viewpoint. Yeah. To save their lives, you know, and so helping helping especially those children through those meltdowns is extremely, extremely valuable. Yeah, absolutely. And and you don't until you experience some of this stuff, you don't know what stage your child might get stuck on or what they're what they're going to have a difficult time with. And and the more we can understand that it's a process and not be afraid of going through that process with them, the the more we get to take on a role as observer and teacher. Yeah. It's like, oh, I, I get to observe my child trying to figure this stuff out. And and it's kind of like when Jaden comes home and he's got homework. He he sits down and he works through the problems. But when he gets stuck and he asks for my help, I come alongside him and I don't give him the answer. Yeah. I, I try to help him understand the problem so that he can solve it himself. And so you get to sit back and you get to kind of observe them working through this process. And when you see them getting stuck, that's when you can come in and say, Hey, I see that you're stuck here. But the really important thing through all of this is that there was a question. I'm going to bring this in. We're getting a little bit stuck on the bargaining thing, but there was, there was a comment that came in when I asked the question, that had to do with not wanting to give the child attention. Yeah. And I, I agree with that in part. And I also disagree with it in part. It's, it is a good thing to be present with them and to be attentive and, and to communicate not just by with your words, but by your, by your presence that you are there for them, that you're going to help them through it. And that is a form of attention. And, and certainly if that's the only time they get attention, they will, they will start to see how having a meltdown will get them what they want. Yeah. But once you get to the meltdown and, and they need that attention from you, that's not when you start to fight the battle. That is when the battle is already lost. Yeah. Now I'm not talking about the war. I'm just talking about the battle. So, so you put up the white flag and you say, okay, I'm going to give you attention here. But then going forward, you say, but, but here's where we can have healthier attention and you give them attention in healthy ways. When you give your child attention in healthy ways consistently, you don't have to worry about them fixating on a specific action or activity that's unhealthy in order to get attention. Yeah. A a lot of our children's meltdowns come from not feeling as connected to us as they feel like they need to, you know? Yeah. Uh, And so a lot of what we can do to alleviate, I mean, we're not going to totally eliminate meltdowns because kids just do that, but some of them can be eliminated or avoided when we have a good connection with our kids. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes you can tell that it's not really a meltdown. Sometimes you can tell, Oh, they're just acting in that situation. I kind of like to call them on it. I kind of like to say, I know, I know when you're melting down and right now you're just acting. And if I ever get that wrong, of course I'm going to admit it. And I'm going to say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that you were really upset. There was, I, I did want to bring in this comment that, that I saw earlier from Cynthia. Okay. She said, I think you, oh, this is, this is when it came to changing your mind with the negotiation. I think you just need to explain why you were making the decision to change your mind and that adults can admit when they're wrong. And that's absolutely if, if I make a judgment in that situation and, and I was wrong, 
or if if I did something that emotionally hurt my child and and I was wrong it's it it doesn't undermine your authority to admit that you're wrong because when you admit that you're wrong it strengthens that relationship and the the strength of the relationship is the foundation of your authority yeah and if you're uncom- uncomfortable with that Susan Stiffelman has a really creative way where she uh, she talks about, you know, realizing that, oh, yeah, your kid does have a point. And you come back and you're like, you know what? I I changed my mind. I decided that we're going to do this. And it's like what your child wants. But it sounds like it's coming from you. So, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, it goes back to bit, like psychology. It's psychology. It seems a little bit sneaky to me. I think it, I think eventually it does become valuable to. Well, when they're older. To, yeah, to to say, you know, you made a really good point there, and I'm proud of you for thinking critically about the situation. Yeah. And, and here's how what you want and what I want can work together. And and so then it then it becomes like you're teaching them what compromise looks like. Yeah, that's I really agree valuable. with that. But you you don't want to tell a two year old that. I mean, if if we ever told our twins, like, yeah, we value your. What you have to say, I mean, they would take that and run with it, that we would never, ever have a compliant three-year-old ever. So yeah, (laughs) maybe I'm being extreme, but. Okay. So the next stage is depression. And in my experience, this seems to be the stage that's kind of the shortest, but it is, it is kind of a turning point. Depression and acceptance, which is the last stage, often seem to be connected there's kind of this, I'm not going to get my way. I'm not going to get what I want. I'm, I'm what I, the outcome that I was looking for isn't, isn't going to happen. And now I just, I feel sad. Yeah. And they might cry or there might just be silence. They might kind of brood a little bit. Yeah. Or they might scream. And it's important to recognize. And again, it's, it's kind of like anger, sadness, is uncomfortable for us, but there are healthy ways that you can express your sadness. And, and sometimes, so with our four-year-old who has a tendency to kind of close down yeah, he does. and mm-hmm. I really, I, I sit with him and I sit there in the silence with them. And sometimes I just let that go on for a while. And when it's, when it's gone on long enough, I, I look at him and I say, you feel sad, don't you? And it's not, a concession. It's not saying you feel, you feel sad and I feel uncomfortable with your sadness. So I'm, I'm open to the idea of giving you what you want. It's yeah. saying, I know, I know that it's hard when you don't get what you want and, and that, and, and you feel sad about that, don't you? And so when you can articulate for them what they're feeling, it teaches them language. So even if, even if they don't say, yeah, I feel sad, even if they just still sit there in silence, at least they're hearing somebody not only articulate what they're feeling, but express understanding. Yeah, which is super valuable. I mean, you think of that as adults and how you feel when someone just gets how you feel. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it helps work through that disappointment. And then the final stage is acceptance. The goal is not acceptance. And, and I want to say that the, the goal is not let's get through this meltdown as quickly as possible so that you can get to acceptance. The goal is for your child to be able to work through for as long and as much as they need to, to work through each of those stages so that they process their emotions, they process their grief in a healthy way. Yeah. If you try to skip any of those things, it's, it stays with them. They don't, they don't, they come out on the other side of that and, and they're not as whole as they were before. And certainly over time, we naturally have a way of dealing with those things. So, but sometimes we don't. As an adult, I know there are things that I still hold on to, that I still carry, that I still have to go back and, and find and work through. Things that are kind of buried deep. And, and it affects the way that I experience life today. And it's it's because I either wasn't taught or I was encouraged to, to skip over the processing of these emotions. Yeah. So I, I, when, when we get to acceptance, that is a, 
that is a positive thing. And, and acceptance doesn't just look like, okay, I've been defeated. I give up. Acceptance can be taken even further into now let's talk about why we're doing this and why it's not just what I want, but it's what's best for everybody here Mm -hmm. and, and helping your child understand that. And certainly depending on their age, you kind of divulge more of the detail of that. But, but again, it's the, your goal is not to make sure that they follow your rules or, or, or obey you no matter what your, your goal is to help them work through those emotions. Yeah. Well, and I, I wanted to bring in something here too, because, um, there's another really, really good book that I feel like has been transformational to the way that we understand our kids. And it's called the whole brain child, um, by two doctors, Dr. Dan Siegel and Tina Payne Bryson. And, um, in it, you know, they talk about meltdowns and and one of the most valuable things in this book for me was at the very end of it they have a chart and it shows some of the most frequent meltdowns according to age and what exactly you can do because of the you know to deal with those meltdowns which yeah. was like I mean I still use it as a reference like it is so marked up and so shabby and um but they talk about how in a meltdown, your kid is not thinking with the logical part of his brain. Right. And so when we come in and we say, oh, you shouldn't, you know, this, it's it's going to be okay. Tomorrow you're not going to miss the stuffed animal or something like that. That's not the part of their brain they're thinking with, you know, because when we're flooded with emotions, we don't think logically. Right. Uh, we're not thinking with the left brain. We're thinking with the right brain, which controls our body. It controls our emotions. And so what helping kids through meltdowns and approaching them with empathy does is it helps that right brain kind of calm down a little bit so that the left brain can start moving in and think more logically. Yeah. And so part of processing through those emotions is uh, emotions are scary. You, you don't want to part of, so going back to depression, part of depression is the feeling of being alone. Yeah. And we don't like to feel like we're alone. We, we want to know that we're understood. And so when we can express and articulate our emotions, when what we're feeling can be translated into words or, or even just actions that, that help us get those out, out of us, then it makes way for the more logical part of the brain to come in and, and take over and, and help us to get to a place of acceptance. And so going, going back to what you said earlier, Rachel, was, was that we don't want to always avoid meltdowns. We don't want to keep our kids from having difficult experiences. And, and sometimes we can even be strategic about when and where those things happen. Yeah. We, we can look at a situation or a circumstance and we can say, you know what? They're probably going to have a meltdown. And... If that happens, I'm prepared for it. We've got some time set aside here where we can work through it. You might you might even talk to your spouse and say, hey, I'm pretty sure our son is about to have a meltdown. Why don't you hang out with the other kids? I'm going to help him work through this real quick. And then, you know, we'll... Real quick. Yeah. yeah <laughs> not, not real quick. Uh, and I also want to say, um, Kobe in the chat had said sometimes they get anger and frustration first. Unfortunately, our kids sometimes get anger and frustration first, unfortunately. And I just want to say that we do not do this perfectly every single time. Yeah. Like when we're in a hurry, it shows, you know, we don't have time to sit down and listen to our kids feelings, you know, but I think recognizing those places and trying to avoid being in such a hurry that we can't engage with our children in those things. I think that's valuable too. And noticing, you know, noticing the places where we are more willing to shut down instead of engaging is is highly valuable. Yeah. And and the more your child experiences meltdowns and has an opportunity to work through their emotions, the more you get to take on that role as a teacher and and help them work through those things. They're 
it's like practice. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that's they're going to experience in life. They're going to experience frustration. Their things are not always going to go their way. And you've seen adults who don't know how to process through grief in those situations. You've seen adults that that just fly off the handle, that get upset when they don't get what they want. Yeah. You've seen adults who don't know how to fight for the things that they believe in and and tend to become doormats and and I I even see in my in myself those places where I don't deal with my emotions in a healthy way and so right now in the home with people who love them your child has an opportunity to practice working through their emotions in this safe environment where they are loved and cared for where if they get it wrong, it's, it's not going to mean they lose a job or they lose a house or they lose a loved one. So, so take, take an opportunity when you can to let them practice this. And by letting them practice, I mean, let them have the meltdown. This was a good refresher for me. I, I honestly, we're, we're saying all of this stuff but we're constantly just having to remind ourselves of these things yeah because we get stuck in our rhythms and we we get stuck in what's easier it's it's so hard it's so hard raising kids and trying to teach them to be healthy adults yeah i think a lot of times we forget that kids don't come equipped with everything we come equipped with you know yeah uh, especially when we have intelligent kids it can, because they can grasp language and those things there, that doesn't mean that they can work through their emotions as well as we have learned to. Um, and I did want to add that when we first started using these stages of grief and just sitting with our children and things like that, um, the first time that we did it with our eight year old, it, I mean, it took a long time. It took probably an hour and a half of our time and it was at night when all the other boys were already asleep and he was still dealing with stuff. Yeah. But every single tantrum that he's had after that has has been reduced in time exponentially. Yeah. And so it, it's almost like he just had to do it one time. And then now he has these tools to use doing it. And. I mean, we don't have nearly as many tantrums anymore as we used to even in our home. So I feel like that's a huge valuable thing because when when we're parents and we're taking care of our children, we're concerned with time and we're, you know, especially with as many children as we have, there's not a whole lot of time to be dealing with meltdowns and things like that. And if, And anything that we can do to reduce the amount of time it takes to deal with negative things in our home is hugely valuable to me yeah. because we can get onto the positive stuff and to the time that we get to spend connecting, which, you know, so the negative things can be opportunities to connect. And I think that mindset has to be changed a little for us. It's not something to avoid. It's, it's an opportunity to connect. Um, that's a whole other episode probably. (laughs) Yeah. It really, it really is a great opportunity to connect. And I mean, goodness, we, so you said we're not experiencing as many meltdowns. Maybe we need to turn the heat up a little bit. Get you know, get, get more our, meltdowns. Get our, get our kids back <laughs> in the classroom. Oh my! I'm just kidding. Yeah. You pur- purposefully provoke your children so that you pr- create teaching opportunities. Don't do that. Yeah. All right. Well, this was really good stuff. Yeah, I agree. Huge, huge thanks to our live listeners who gave us so many great answers and asked so many wonderful questions throughout the show. And I just, I want to, I want to bring this in because one of the ways that this show is made possible, well, the, the way this show is made possible is because of the Sean West community. It's a community where like-minded people, uh, a lot of creative people, entrepreneurs, parents are able to come and and we have a chat room where a lot of great discussion happens. There are forums, tons of of valuable information about finding balance in life uh, between, between your personal life and your work. 
And I just, I can't say enough good stuff about this community, but it's been life-changing for me, life-changing for many people. And, and so not only if you join, not only can you help support this show and help make it happen, but you can connect with other people who think this way and who are asking these kinds of questions, who are encouraging and challenging in all, all the best ways. So I highly encourage you, go to seanwest.com slash community. Rachel, where can people go to find us online? In the boat with ben.com. That's right. If you go to in the boat with ben.com, we've got a list of our episodes there. You can also sign up for our newsletter and we will send you an email anytime we uh, come out with a new show, which is every Thursday. And we'll include a nice bulleted point of takeaways from our show, but also a link to the full show notes in a place where you can listen to this. You can also go to in the boat with ben.com slash iTunes and you can leave us a positive review there. We've had a lot of people leave reviews already and we've been, I think for two weeks now, we've been in the new and noteworthy section, Yes, which is fantastic because of the reviews that people are leaving. So thank you so much for those of you who have left reviews. If you haven't yet, please, please go leave us a quick review and uh, let us know how this show is helping you and, and what it means to you. And, uh, and, and it also helps other people who are considering whether or not to listen to this show, see other people's experience. I'm going to read one from Glenn Leibowitz. He says, I listened to Ben on the amazing Sean West podcast and hear snippets of his home life. The challenges of balancing a busy career with his large and rambunctious brood of boys. Now he and his wife open the doors to their home and invite you in to see what really happens. As a father of two facing similar challenges, this one resonates. Thank you, Glenn Leibowitz. There you go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Ben Tolson and Rachel is on Twitter at Rachel Tolson. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks for hanging out with us today. I know we had a lot to cover, but really great information. It was good for me to hear it again. ask one quick question to see if you could you know if you had an answer for this but sure. do you remember like either the most the the most difficult or the funniest meltdown that our kids have ever had i mean it, it's i i think back to the eight-year-old to Jaden. he mm-hmm. and some of the because he reads so much because he's exposed to and and with books sometimes it's a completely different time period. And so the, the way that they would communicate their frustration was completely different yeah, from the yeah. way that we communicate it now. And so that's been the funniest thing to me is to see what he takes from those books that he's reading that don't really have any context in our modern culture <laughs> and, and brings that language into, and, and he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to try out this word yeah, to express how I feel right now. Yeah. I I remember one particularly funny one when uh, I think that he wanted to go back upstairs in his room and listen to an audiobook, and it was time to have dinner. So, you know, normally he could go listen to an audiobook, but he, we needed him down for dinner because we do family dinners together. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I specifically remember him like standing at the stairs and saying in this growl voice, like, you, me, daddy or something like that and it was just like i think both of us started laughing yeah because it was so funny it's really hard not to laugh at your kids. <laughs> so i remember one that was really funny we were at a church and he really wanted to go play in the playground but we couldn't let him 
And so he got very angry and he, he clenched his fists and he pointed them at the ground and his whole body shook. <laughs> and, and he said, these are my missiles. <laughs> and that was, and that was how he was showing us that he was angry. Yeah. Which is a relatively, you know, healthy way of showing it. Yeah. Unless they were actual missiles, then we, we would have been in trouble. 